For 1600 years, the majority of people rejected God and worked to destroy the world God made. So God unmade their world and destroyed them. Now there's only one boat and eight people on a world covered in water. This is The Great Deep, part two. As best we can tell, on something like November 2, 1656 years after creation, God came and told Noah to take his family and climb aboard the ark. This is the moment when history splits into two different stories. There's the people outside the ship that I talked about last time, and these eight who went in. Think about that moment for these people. They have to leave behind everything that's not going on the ark. And that includes family. For Noah, it could have been brothers and sisters. For his wife, maybe parents and siblings. For Noah's daughters-in-law, though, they probably had to abandon their entire extended families. Parents and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews. Think of them taking a last look around, seeing these people they would never see again. And then think about the background. Because, remember, their world was a lot more like paradise than we have today. There was green, it was lush, you'd hear the sound of songbirds in the trees. And then they turn and look up the hill. In a green world that's full of life, the ark gives you a different feeling. Fifty feet tall and a football field and a half long, it looms up there on the top of the hill. The outside of the ship is a murky brown from all those layers of pitch. The word used in Genesis for the ark is similar to a root word the Egyptians later used to mean coffin. And that's maybe the impression you get when you look at it. In this world that's full of life, the ark is the opposite. These eight people climb the hill, go up a ramp or a ladder, and in through the door on the side of the ship. This door probably let them enter the top deck, perhaps near the bow or the stern, not in the middle, where a door would weaken the structure. And God seals them in. For Noah and his family, the inside of the ark suddenly became their whole world. Their eyes had to adjust to the dark, the rooms and aisles perhaps lit with nothing more than oil or beeswax lamps. And instead of fresh air, there'd be no breeze. Ventilation came only from small windows high up near the roof. So the atmosphere would be thick and heavy every breath having the smell of barley and wheat and dried vegetables and fruit from all the stockpiles down in the hold. It would also have the smell of wood and pitch. But more than any of those things, I think it would smell like livestock. The odor of hundreds or thousands of animals, monkeys and lions, bears and otters, rabbits and lizards, all mixed together. And you'd get all the noises of them too, wild animals panting and pacing and snoring. In the dim light, you'd see rows and rows of cages stretching off along all the walkways. For these eight people, their world was now this dim, dark zoo. When God told Noah to get on the ark, he said the rain would come in seven days. Imagine a calendar hanging on the wall when they get on board, and they cross the room 
and mark off November 2. They do the chores, feed the animals, eat, find their beds, and go to sleep. The next day, they get up and cross off November 3, and it's the same. And then the next day, the same again. All the while, you can imagine some stress, right? Is the rain really going to come? Are we all really as crazy as people probably say? Then on November 9, the storm hits. I imagine everyone jumping with that first boom of thunder, listening to it roll and echo. Japheth or Shem maybe climb up to the little window near the roof. Perhaps they see some of the dark clouds, some of the lightning flickering. And then the rain comes, and with it pouring off the roof, it shuts out any view of the world outside. Initially, this rain would be a relief, right? Vindication that you were right, that you had been right to listen to God. Then, the ground underneath you begins to tremble. Genesis only says that God told Noah about the rain. So what does Noah think when he feels earthquakes ripple by underneath his feet? What does he think when he hears trees explode from being hit by lightning, or feels the rumble of a volcano beginning to erupt? What would go through your mind? You were expecting rain, but this, this is more than rain. When do you start to get a little nervous? You thought you knew what was coming, until now. And with that on your mind, you still have to go about your day. Do the chores, take care of the animals, make food, eat, and go to sleep. And all the while, you're wondering, if this is what happened today, what's going to happen tomorrow? This pattern keeps going day after day. Genesis emphasizes the power of the storm that flooded the world. It says the same thing four different times in two sentences. First, the waters increased, or became great. Then they prevailed and increased greatly. Then they prevailed more and more. And finally, they prevailed, and the mountains were covered. It's trying to describe something that there aren't words for. During the flood, parts of the planet literally tore apart. There's no adjectives for that. But that's what's going on. Day after day, week after week, that's the background noise to everything that you do on the ark. The flicker of lightning through the windows, the crashing waves, the wind whipping by the walls outside. And I imagine it gives you a steady drip of adrenaline. Chronic background stress, where you're always a little anxious, wondering what comes next. And if you think about it, that stress is all while the ark is still on dry ground. This was something I hadn't thought about. I usually think of the flood starting and the ark floating on the water. But if you build a ship at the top of a hill so it launches into deep water, you have to wait for the water to get up there. The ark wouldn't float free during the first day or even the first month of rain. Martin Luther figured this out. He suggested the ark didn't float until the rain was almost over. So, regardless of the noises outside, Noah, his wife, his sons, the whole family are at least above it all. But then, as the weeks go by, you can imagine Shem putting his ear to the wall and listening to the sound of water creeping closer. One day, he can hear the waves splashing, and the next, it's gurgling sounds coming from under the surface. You mark the water level on the wall as each day goes by, and you see the level moving higher and higher. And after about five and a half weeks, Genesis says, quote, 
The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. End quote. That's water more than 20 feet above the summit of the highest mountain. Today, there's often the suggestion that Genesis only describes a local flood, something limited to the modern Middle East or the Black Sea. This isn't a new idea. It comes up at least 100 years ago. But Genesis doesn't leave room for that option. It says specifically, quote, all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered, end quote. A local flood stops when it reaches something taller than the flood is deep. But if all the high mountains are covered, there's nothing left to stop a flood. At that point, there's no shoreline, and it has to be a worldwide flood. It's not like there's a shortage of water. If the earth were perfectly smooth, every spot on it would be covered 1.6 miles deep. Today, most of this water is limited to the ocean basins. But imagine if the floor of those oceans pressed upward. Water along the coastlines everywhere would rush inland. You combine that with the underground reservoirs, the fountains of the deep bursting open, and you have a global flood ready-made. This water rushes in and scours out the valleys. It surges up, climbing the sides of the hills, and you get to the point where it covers the tallest mountains and reaches halfway up the sides of the ark, probably just enough for the ark to float free for the first time. Think of what this would be like. You hear the sound of splashing water all around you outside. The waves crash against the walls of the ship. And then, right after one hits, the ark moves. I picture everyone stopping what they're doing and looking around. They grab railings. The ship floats up for a minute and then comes down hard, crunching into the ground as the wave passes. It had to be an agonizing thing. And then a moment later, another wave hits and it happens again. The ship lifts up and then crashes back into the ground. Timbers and bulkheads creak and groan as the weight of the ship shifts again, and you see the beams flex. Your stomach twists into a knot, and you try not to think about the rocks scraping and battering the outside of the ship. Try not to think about the wood splintering in the very first moments of the flood. Finally, with one large wave, the ship lifts free enough to get swept off the hilltop. And in a moment, it's out in the ocean. The ground is covered, the ark floats free, and with that, the sounds outside change. The water pouring from the roof goes away, and maybe Noah looks at his calendar and sees it's December 18. God said it would rain for 40 days, and now the rain stops. Genesis says, quote, The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. End quote. The mountains are underwater, and the ark floats with half its height above the surface. Cargo ships today keep only about 25% of the ship above water, but that ratio depends on how watertight the top of the ship is, and maybe what kind of waves you're expecting. And the ark faced the waves of an ocean with no shoreline. Stories of enormous waves are part of sailing lore. In 1943, people aboard the ocean liner, the Queen Elizabeth, claimed they were struck by two towering waves, waves that reached up and shattered windows 91 feet above the waterline. 
Ten years before that, on February 7, 1933, the USS Ramapo, traveling across the North Pacific, said that they survived a wide swell that towered 112 feet tall. And about 70 years before that, on March 11, 1861, a wall of water struck one of the lighthouses on Eagle Island off the coast of Ireland. This wave broke through the top of the lighthouse tower. Windows that were 220 feet above sea level. But sailors are known for their tall tales. There's probably some exaggeration going on here, right? Then came New Year's Day, 1995. On that day, there was a storm in the North Sea. 38-foot waves rolled by underneath the Dropner oil drilling platform. At least, they rolled by underneath it until mid-afternoon. At 3.20 p.m., an 85-foot-tall wave going 45 miles an hour slammed into the side of the rig. This was a wave more than 40 feet taller than the ones around it, and sensors caught a record of it. With this event, scientists began to admit that huge waves did exist. They call them rogue waves, steep walls of water that tower at least twice the height of the waves around them. Statistically, things like this should happen only once every 10,000 years. But then, just over a month after the wave hit the Dropner oil rig in the North Sea, a 95-foot wave struck the ocean liner Queen Elizabeth II. Ten years later, in April of 2005, a nearly 70-foot wave hit the cruise ship Norwegian Dawn, breaking windows on the 9th and 10th decks. There's even data from one oil field that shows it faced more than 400 of these waves in just 12 years. That's not one wave every 10,000 years, but one rogue wave every 10 days. Today, scientists can even look down from space and detect some of them on the surface of the ocean, but they're still trying to figure out where they come from. It could be that they form when smaller waves run into one another in just the right way to add together, or it could be that a storm might mix with an ocean current and generate these monstrous waves. One theory is that the constant winds you get in continuous storms may help these waves form. A storm just like the one circling the planet for 40 days, right before the ark set sail. The ark is swept clear of its hilltop, and if it was made the way we design it today, as it began to float, it probably spun into the wind, so the waves hit it end-on, rather than from the side. In steady 33-mile-per-hour winds on the open ocean today, waves average 11 feet high. But then, you have a 5% chance of being hit by a 40-foot wave every 5 hours. Imagine the first time you hit one of those waves. It would be a shock. It would throw you off your feet. And that would be bad enough. But then think about the anxiety that comes every time the ark starts to climb another wave. Because every time that happened, you wouldn't know if you were facing a normal one or a rogue. Remember, Noah and his family can't really see outside. They can't steer. They can only hold on. When each wave hits, they'd feel the boat get pushed up and back. The bow would point higher and higher, the ship tilting. Rogue waves are known for being tall and steep. So as the ship tips back, you don't know how high it's going to go. The hull creaks and groans, but the boat rides out the wave. It gets to the crest, and for a moment, it levels out. 
You hear the wind howling outside those windows near the top. Even today, certain latitudes on the ocean are called the Roaring Forties, or the Furious Fifties, or the Screaming, the Shrieking Sixties. The ship gets to the top of the wave, and you hear this wind wailing outside. You teeter there for a minute, and breathe a sigh of relief. Then the ship starts to surf down the back of the wave, and all the anxiety comes right back. Because the height of the waves wasn't the only thing you had to worry about. If you can add waves together to get towering giants, you can also subtract the valleys. This makes something scientists call rogue holes, gaping canyons of water at least twice as deep as everything else around them. Every time the ark crested a wave and started down, you can imagine the white knuckles you'd have holding on to the railings, the lump crawling back up into your throat as the ship plunged down into the trough, and you waited for the crash because you didn't know how far you were going to fall. And this goes further than just one wave. Noah and his family might have also faced what sailors call the Three Sisters, or the Glorious Three. It's a trio of rogue waves that come one after another. Researchers have found these too. One huge wave crashes into you. The ship lists to the side. Then another hits. Then another. Picture living through that, and not for just a few hours or a couple of days, but weeks. Nausea, seasickness, the stress of all those moments when you don't know how the ship is going to survive. You strap yourself into bed at night to avoid being thrown out of your bunk. What do you do with chronic stress like that, never knowing what the next wave will bring? During the Battle of Britain, pilots talked about waiting for the phone to ring, saying they had to scramble to their planes. They couldn't relax. There was that constant nervousness, worrying that the phone would ring at any second, and always having to be ready to jump up. What does that do to Noah and his wife, and Shem, and Ham, and Japheth, and their wives, when that anxiety doesn't last for just a day or two, but months? Why would God put you through that? And to top it off, being in a storm wasn't enough. Amid the pitching of the deck and the crash of waves outside and holding on so you weren't thrown off of your feet, Noah and Shem and all the rest still had chores to do. These chores probably came in three categories. First, there's the human tasks, the doing laundry, preparing food, cleaning up, the standard stuff. Then there are the animal chores, and we can only guess at this part. Genesis doesn't say how many types of animals there were. It doesn't say if the animals were awake or maybe hibernating. So we don't know what was involved in keeping this floating zoo going. But if the animals were active, then you have to bring them their food, bring them their water, and figure out what to do with all the manure. That's a lot of tasks. And finally, before your day was done, there were still the ship chores. Every day, maybe Japheth had to go down into the hold and check the food supply, sorting through the potatoes and grains and fruit to get rid of mold and rot before it spread. Ham might have been the one tasked with taking a lantern and walking the entire ship, searching for any signs of a leak. With the small crew and thousands of animals exhaling, the air would have been humid and damp, the water condensing and running down the walls, and it would drain down toward the keel, and you can imagine Shem or other members of the crew 
having to figure out how to pump or carry the water away as it accumulated. After the rain ended and the flood kept going, day in and day out, this would have been life for Noah and his family. It went on for a month, two months, three months. John Calvin, in his commentary, suggests that Noah felt some anxiety here. He's always waiting for the flood to end, but he never hears anything from God. Since that day he got on the ark, there's no evidence that God still remembers him. The world is empty. Everyone is dead, except for these people and animals on this little boat. And you can imagine Noah could feel abandoned, that God had forgotten him. This is the moment in the story where I want to say, meanwhile, because while all this was happening on the surface, the rogue waves and taking care of animals and ship maintenance, and maybe feeling abandoned by God, underwater, God was remaking the world. Geologists today think the land on Earth used to be collected into a single landmass. And if they're right, the earthquakes and volcanoes and fountains of the deep jetting into the air were all part of what happened when that supercontinent tore apart during the flood. The land ripping, shearing off continent-sized slabs of rock and sending them careening across the mantle until they rammed into one another. That's what's happening deep underwater. But Noah wouldn't have known anything about it. Waves from undersea earthquakes don't show up as tsunamis until they run into the shallows. Maybe Noah would feel a big swell pass under the ship, but nothing that would tell him whether the flood was almost over. Then Genesis has this line. It says, quote, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. End quote. A couple of commentaries suggested that this was a hot wind, something to drive away the rain and begin to evaporate the water. And this is where the flood finally starts to go down. I think this happened in lots of ways. One scholar said underground caverns soaked up the flood, and you can imagine water seeping into and filling the aquifers we still use today. If the floor of the ocean surged up at the start of the flood to push water onto the land, this might be where the sea floor drops away. In the ocean today, there are great ravines, canyons deep underwater. One trench off the coast of Puerto Rico goes down more than five miles, while the deepest point in the Marianas Trench in the Pacific is almost seven miles down. If Mount Everest fell into the sea at that spot, it would disappear, only reaching the bottom when its peak was more than a mile underwater. The ocean floors sink down and water pours off the continents, filling these trenches. Rivers of water spanning continents race across the wet ground, leaving scars that we still see on the surface today. This was erosion at an incredible scale. Think of the Grand Canyon in the United States. The theory goes that it took millions of years for the canyon to form, the river at the bottom slowly wearing its way deeper. But that depends on your assumptions. It might take millions of years for a little water to dig a big canyon, but a lot of water, moving fast, can do the same thing in days. As a river flows faster, it can carry more and larger particles. Floods pull rocks and boulders out of the ground, bouncing them downstream. During a week in mid-2002, 34 inches of rain fell on land that drains into the Guadalupe River in Texas. That water then funneled into Canyon Lake, 
eventually surging over the spillway of the dam at the other end of the reservoir. In three days, that water carved a canyon 30 feet deep. And that's only a sample of what was happening all around the world as the floodwaters drained away. Today, people debate whether the flood in Genesis ever happened. Sometimes they bring up details from the story that don't appear to make sense. But I want to take a moment and ask a different question. What about all the things in this story that shouldn't make sense, but do? If these details are made up, why do we find evidence that so many of them are right? Genesis says the flood came suddenly, just the conditions needed to make the fossils we find all around the world. It says the flood covered the highest mountains, and we find fossils from under the sea at the top of the Himalayas. It says the ark was six times longer than it was wide and ten times longer than it was tall. Thousands of years ago, how did the author of Genesis know those proportions were close to the sweet spot for designing a cargo ship? How did they know that it was just the right shape for facing storms on the open ocean? How did the author of Genesis figure out the geology and the physics and the chemistry to invent a tale that matches the real-world evidence so well? Other flood stories aren't like this. The Babylonian version says the boat that survived the flood was a cube, where the length, width, and height were the same. It goes on to say that the boat took only seven days to build, despite being 200 feet long on a side, having seven decks and nine rooms on each deck, and that the flood itself came and went in just two weeks. The story in Greece says that only two people survived, and no animals. While in Peru, it's even worse, because only one man survived, and no women. Do any of those versions sound more likely? People don't debate whether these legends really happened because they don't match what we see in the world today. And that's perhaps part of the reason the record of the flood in Genesis stands out. It's oddly accurate. And it reads a little like a captain's log. It makes you wonder if Noah was writing things down in a journal as they happened. There's the date the rain started, how long it rained, a note about the wind coming up and the water starting to drop. And then, here, about April 9, perhaps 110 days after the ark lifted off from its dry dock, there's another entry. After nearly four months at sea, the water is suddenly too shallow, and the ark runs aground. This is a terrifying thing. In just this year, a Panamanian cargo ship named the Crimson Polaris ran aground in a harbor in Japan, and it ultimately split in half. And the Crimson Polaris is a modern steel cargo ship. Imagine that happening to you in something made of wood. If things go well, the ark hits a mud bank. But what if it's an outcropping of rocks? You can think of another one of those gut-wrenching moments. Noah not being able to do anything but listen as rocks bite into the hull, tearing out chunks of wood. Hearing the crunches as the ship grinds to a stop. Then, five months to the day after the rain began, the voyage is over, and Genesis has this entry. It says, quote, In the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains. End quote. You'd think that would be a day to celebrate, and I'm sure it was. The flood was over, right? Not quite. For Noah, his family, and all those animals, they haven't even made it halfway. 
The ark sat on the top of a mountain, but only the keel touched the ground. The world was still covered in water in every direction. It takes another 10 weeks till sometime around June 23 for the water to drop enough that the tips of the mountains, like tiny islands, start to appear. Imagine watching this part of the flood from space as a time-lapse video. First, you see the Himalayas show up as a string of islands where the land crumpled when India rammed into the southern part of Asia. Then, thousands of miles to the southeast, another line of peaks shows up, drawing a dot-to-dot -dot coastline of what will be South America, where the Nazca Plate pushed up the Andes. And as you watch the time-lapse, the islands grow and they join together. And soon, the mountaintops around Noah break through the surface, too. Noah hasn't seen land for over six months, and this is his first look at the new world. But as he sees it, everything's changed, and he probably has no idea where he is. Put yourself into his shoes. As far as we know, he hasn't heard from God since the day he boarded the ark. His ship is grounded on the top of a mountain, and he doesn't know how long he'll be there or whether he ought to start rationing his food supply. And now he looks out at the mountains poking up through the waves and realizes that the flood has completely changed the surface of the world. And he has no idea where he is or what else is waiting for him beneath the water. Noah doesn't know where he is, and today we don't really know either. Genesis says the ark landed on the mountains of Ararat, with Ararat referring to a region. It's like saying it landed on the mountains of Switzerland. But given that the ark ran aground, and that the tips of the mountains couldn't be seen until later, perhaps the most likely place is the highest point. Today, that highest point is a place called the Finger Mountain. This is the peak people usually think of as Mount Ararat, on the border between Turkey, Armenia, and Iran. And in the past, this was a plausible conclusion. But recent research suggests that Mount Ararat is a volcano that formed after the flood. So it wouldn't have been the tallest mountain in the area when Noah's Ark came to rest. Today, the mountain Noah landed on is still a mystery. The mountains appear, and Noah waits about another six weeks, until sometime around August 3, before he takes a raven, opens a window, and sends it out as a scout. A couple of commentaries suggested Noah chose a raven because it eats carrion, and if the earth was habitable, it would find food to eat, perhaps among everything that died in the flood. But Genesis isn't quite clear about what happened next. Apparently, the raven just flew back and forth. In any case, Noah next sends out a dove. This one's more interesting. The word used for dove in Genesis is the same as what it would use for pigeon, and it makes you think of homing pigeons. They're known for stamina and speed, regularly going 500 miles in a day while averaging 60 miles an hour. Some of this is the result of selective breeding, but that dove Noah had on the ark, it was the ancestor of these birds today. Noah releases the dove and it goes out as an aerial scout and comes back. There's no place for it to land. Noah waits a week and he does it again. And this time the dove brings back an olive leaf, freshly picked. Olive trees grow on mountains, and they can sprout even underwater. And this is the leaf the dove finds and brings back. It's the first evidence that something outside the ark survived the flood. Noah waits another week, and he sends out the dove again, and it doesn't come back. It's now been almost four and a half months since the ark ran aground, and it's September 23, New Year's Day, 
and Noah begins to take the roof off of the ark. You can imagine that moment when he gets his first real look at the world outside. Maybe the sky is dotted with cotton-like clouds, the sun showing through in places, with the water shimmering off in the distance while it still drains away. And Genesis says, quote, Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry, end quote. One commentary suggested that the ground was dry, but not dry enough to walk on. Imagine a bog or a swamp. And the door of the ark stays closed. The water's dropping. Noah can see the ground again, but still God doesn't say anything to him. The second month rolls around. It's been a year since the family boarded the ark, and cabin fever has to be setting in. The ground's visible outside. Things are growing. But every day, you still have to take care of the animals, do the chores, and wait. It makes you a little restless, right? How impatient would you be here? God closed the door, but he hasn't opened it. Until finally, around November 19, God speaks to Noah again and tells him it's time to leave the ark. Noah opens the pens and the cages, and the animals, as I picture it, stampede for the door. Noah follows them, and as he gets there, think about what he sees. This isn't his first look outside. He'd taken the roof off the ark earlier and seen mountains and things. But this is the moment when he's supposed to leave the ark and live in this world that's just been destroyed. Look up pictures of what things look like after a local flood and multiply that to something that has gone around the globe. Trees uprooted or snapped in half, stumps and branches left in heaps, rocks strewn about, cliffs and muddy ravines and canyons left behind when the water drained away and washed the topsoil off. Bogs and swamps are dotted everywhere as the land still tries to dry out. And Noah's got to be comparing all of that to the world he left behind when God closed the door on the ark. When we think of Noah and the ark and the flood, there are a couple of ways to tell the story. You can talk about the beautiful world Noah left behind and all the family members he and his wife and sons and daughters-in-law abandoned. It can focus on the dim lighting and damp air, the constant round of chores, or the never-ending anxiety of rogue waves and sharp rocks always threatening to tear the ship apart. It can be the story of Noah feeling abandoned, thinking that God had forgotten him. That's one version, and that's how I told it. But there's a different one you can choose to tell instead. When Noah and his family boarded the ark, they didn't see it as a coffin, but a lifeboat. God was rescuing them from a world that likely wanted to kill them, and perhaps they didn't even look back as they boarded the ship. Inside, the ship was damp, but it was also quiet, the thick walls muffling the shouts and threats from people outside. They didn't have to worry about the ark being swamped by rogue waves or dashed into a mountainside. God promised them they'd survive the flood. They didn't have anything to worry about. The chores, rather than being a burden, were a diversion from the monotony of simply waiting for the flood to end. And when they did run aground, it wasn't with anxiety about the rocks ripping through the walls of the ship, but relief and thanks that God had returned the ship to solid ground after so many months at sea. See the difference? For Noah, Shem, Japheth, and the others, there were two options. They could ignore God's promise and spend the flood anxious and fearful, or trust that God told the truth and be at peace. 
It all depended on their own choice. And it's a choice we still have today. We can ignore God and look at the future with foreboding. Or like Noah, we can trust his promises and get on the lifeboat. If we do that now, we don't have to worry when the storm comes. Genesis doesn't say what Noah, his wife, his sons, or his daughters-in-law thought when they first stepped out of the ark. Instead, it tells us what they did. After waiting a year and ten days on the ship, Genesis says that Noah built an altar and, quote, took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar, end quote. Now, we assume people used altars all the way back from Adam and Cain and Abel and Seth down to this time, but this is the first reference to it in the Bible. And if it's like the altars that came later, Noah would have stacked up rough stones, stones he could just pull from the ground. And this isn't a small sacrifice he offers. When you've brought a maximum of 14 of each clean animal with you on the ark, killing some of them for a sacrifice is a big deal. And it shows us which path Noah chose. He doesn't look at the mud and debris and think about what the flood destroyed. He looks at a world washed clean and a place where he can worship God openly and freely. One commentator pointed out that this was the first thing Noah did when he left the ark. He didn't explore, he didn't build a house or a corral to keep the animals from running off. The first thing he did was reestablish the worship of God on the earth made new. It was the thing the people in the last world abandoned. Noah renews the worship of God in the world. And God didn't tell Noah to do this. God told Noah to build the ark, to get on the ark, to get off the ark. But this sacrifice, this is something Noah does on his own. Noah brought a gift to God because he wanted to. The history of the flood began when God looked down at the world and saw how violent and wicked it had become. And now, at the end of the story, the scene shifts back to God again. When Noah brings an offering, God puts a rainbow in the sky, maybe the first rainbow, and makes a promise. He says he will never again do what he's done with the flood. And, quote, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. End quote. Never again would there be a flood to destroy the whole world. And it's with that promise in mind that, at age 601, Noah started life over. He was the first settler on an unsettled planet. And as he left the ark behind and began rebuilding, I imagine growing food was a priority. I can picture him laying out a garden, putting in a field of wheat or barley. And at some point along the way, he planted a vineyard. If, in earlier episodes, the geography and details about the world were a little vague, the flood is the reason for it. We know so little about the world Adam and Eve lived in because God buried that world and remade the earth. The next episode is what Noah's kids did with it. Until then, if you want to splash through more details about the flood, WiderBible.com has articles, references, and links to get you started. There's also a place on the website for asking questions and a page where you can subscribe if you want to know when something new comes out. I'm Adam Schell. Thanks for listening.